The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Today we're talking about walkability in the context of this city and others as well. How important is uh, a city being walkable to help us with this? Our regular guests on the Urban Squeeze, Associate Professor Jason Byrne and Dr Tony Matthews, both urban planners, both with the School of Environment at Griffith University. Gentlemen, hello. Good afternoon, Matt. Hi, Matt. This topic I'm excited about because it's dawned on me just how many songs there are about walking you could literally fill a whole program full of songs about walking clive has just jumped on the phone and said that he loved hearing neil young's walk on liked playing it too clive well done walkability the topic today which is uh, something i've never really pondered in the context of a city nor nor its importance where do you begin with a topic as broad as walkability jace i think what we do is we go back to where some of the pressure points are for what's inspiring planning to think about walkability. So the World Health Organization has recently suggested that physical inactivity, so people who are not very active, Mm -hmm. that it's now the fourth leading mortality risk factor globally. Immobility. Immobility. It's like the new sugar in tobacco, right? right? Um, So in Australia, we know that obesity and uh, overweight has doubled as a percentage of the population over the last 30 years, which is pretty remarkable. Um, up to 60% of Australians are now overweight or obese, according to the National Health Research Council, Medical Research Council. And by 2020, 60%. 60%. By 2025, that's going to be two-thirds, so mm. heading up to 70%. This is some real costs. So we know that uh, it costs about 21 billion dollars per annum billion dollars per annum in direct medical costs and about 35 billion dollars in indirect costs so that's things like carers having to be around looking after people direct medical costs like going to the doctor you know all that kind of stuff um we also know that people who are overweight and obese are more than twice as likely to get depression depression costs a further $12.6 billion per annum. So that's, that's the bad news. <laughs> that's, that's heading up to $100 billion per annum in medical direct and indirect costs associated with these issues. But, Tony, we've been talking about this. The real catch here is that the solution is right in front of us. It's about walking, isn't it? Uh, it is, and it intersects with our world because people spend their entire lives. Most people in Australia spend their entire lives in an urban environment. So that becomes the principal environment within Mm. which they exist. And so all of the health outcomes associated with living in that environment uh, can be traced back to some degree to urban design. So if urban environments are designed in a way that makes it unfriendly for people to be physically active and walk, they won't be physically active and they won't walk and they'll spend more time in their cars and they'll spend more time sitting and they'll have associated negative health outcomes. So that's where urban planning and, and this walkability thing meet is the concern about how do we design or redesign our cities to get people walking more. Yes. So you might have seen that in the news this week. There's been a lot of talk about congestion again and mm. 
people sitting in cars for a long time. Uh, Gold Coast ranks about eighth in Australia now in terms of congestion. Um, it's getting right up there. Uh, there's a, a lot of people sitting in cars for long periods of time, commuting or being stuck in traffic. Um, that's leading to expanding wastelines, uh, and that's resulting in preventable deaths. Yeah, right. Um, so if we design our suburbs to be more walkable and our cities to be more walkable, and this is as simple as people getting half an hour extra walking a day, we can start to really tackle this problem. There's some massive savings, right, that we could be um, returning to the economy uh, if we have more walkability. Let's talk about walkability at first instance. What do you, is there a definition of walkability in the urban planning jargon, world, yeah. jargon dictionary? Yep. yep. So it gets down to two concepts. Um, these are connectivity and destinations. So connectivity refers to just how connected are your streets. Like around Mermaid Beach, where the studios are here, it's quite easy to get around. It looks a little bit like Manhattan in New York. There's a grid Everything pattern. lines up. Everything on a lines grid. up. Yeah. You kind of know in your mind where things are. It's easy to get from one place to another. But when you head out to some of those suburbs that were developed in the 70s and 80s with all those spaghetti cul-de-sac sort of style streets, they're not walkable at all. You can spend a long time walking down this street, connecting to another street and still being stuck in that suburb and not being able to get out, even though you can see it, you know, over the other side of the houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So walkability is this idea of being connected, connectivity, but also destinations, right, Tony? So... So it's, it's partly on where you're going. I mean, there's two types of walking. There's purposeful walking to a specific destination, and then there's leisure walking or recreational walking. Um, if we just look at destination walking, that is getting people to just do a few minutes of walking to a destination every day. If you can locate a public, a reliable public transport service within 15 minutes of somebody's house that they can, they can walk there in the morning, they can take the bus to work, they can get the bus back to the stop and walk 15 minutes home, that's a half an hour of exercise achieved a day. So that is a good outcome. That's time that they're not spending in their cars. And that, of course, has flow-on effects as well because as, as people are, are walking less and spending more time in cars, there's more air pollution, there's more environmental pollution associated with that. So um, what we would like ultimately to focus on is the, is the two types of walking. So we want to give people more opportunity for recreational walking and, and casual walking, and we want to give people more opportunity to walk to specific destinations. And for most people, their destination is either where they work or study. So that's really probably where we need to focus our attention. Okay. So if you ask people, where do they spend, how do they get to most of their destinations during the day? When you go shopping, how do you get there? Many people probably get like, oh, I take the car to the supermarket. When you go to work, how do you get there? Oh, I take the car. If we can change that out so you walk to go shopping or you walk to get to work or you walk to a nearby public transport surface, that's starting to change some of these things out. So that kind of walking might be just imagine a neighbourhood like just down the road in Nobby's Beach where you can walk to the newsagent, you can walk to the butcher, you can walk to some cafes or a nice little restaurant, um, you can walk to the IGA or to a Mediterranean deli pick up your stuff and head home, right? So the more little trips you're making like that every day, rather than jumping in your car, the more passive kind of built-in activities occurring. That's that destination walking. And that's sort of indirect effects too, the, the uh, uh, sense of community attached with that, of ownership of where you exist Absolutely. in the world. These yeah. sorts of kind of more philosophical things, I guess. Well, no, not just philosophical. So you're, you're spot on. This is exactly what we're talking about. If you're walking down the road to go to the cafe and pick up a bottle of milk and you know something else from the Mediterranean deli on your way home, you're going to go past your neighbours. <laughs> I might take saying, it that you quite enjoy a visit to a Mediterranean oh, deli. I mean, it's just kind of a little somebody's novelty that place. Somebody's getting some free tapping out after this. <laughs> um, you know, you're waving to your neighbours, they're saying, g'day, how you yeah, doing? Yeah. They're having a chat with you. 
there's social interaction occurring which improves the safety of the neighbourhood and the connectedness of the neighbourhood and looking after each other. But there's also less sense of isolation than you get when you're stuck out mm. in the suburbs. So depression is partly caused by this sense of isolation and not being connected to other, other people. If you're walking and getting the physical activity which is known to help combat depression and you're getting connected to other people, then you're much happier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you can keep it local, that's a good thing. Um, get to know your neighbourhood and your neighbours. That makes people feel more content, more secure, more socially connected and ultimately happier. And we, we, you know, we as planners, I mean, not Jason and I personally, but the, the planning profession has been partly responsible for some of the bad outcomes here because we threw our weight behind, and to some degree still do, actually. I mean, mostly we still do, throw our weight behind these big box out-of-suburb retail destinations, you know, these huge supermarkets or, or hardware stores or pharmacies. So what once was a local service, or, yes. or like Jason has, has spoken about, what we've done is we've supersized these and we've pushed them out of, to the edge of to our the suburbs, perimeter. and there's no mm. way to get there for the most part, without taking your car. Uh, and, and of course, the, you know, the, 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 the merchants or the retailers, the commercial uh, operators that um, occupy these places, well, they love it because it gives them a captive audience, and it's a captive audience with a car, which can take home a lot more stuff than you can take yes. on a bike or on the bus or something. So, I mean, these, in some respects, offer some advantages, but they're very, very bad in terms of health outcomes. What was the logic behind that idea from a planning perspective at first instance? There was obviously a, a reason why this seemed like a good idea at the time. You're going to laugh. It partly gets back to health. So after the Industrial Revolution occurred and people are flocking into cities in large mm -hmm. numbers, we had problems where there was no control over land use. So someone might, for example, have a tannery right next door to a residential apartment building, lots of stench and odours, not, not much good control over sanitation, this kind of stuff. So planners thought, well, let's separate what we call these kind of incompatible land uses. Let's zone them so you have a place for residences, a place yeah. for industrial, a place for commercial, a place for education. So planning created that problem. It, actually, it was you. Yeah, it's our fault. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's actually it's interesting as a slight aside. I mean, the very basis of urban planning is is rooted in health. Uh, if you go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution in Britain, where you had all of these people who moved in from the uh, rural areas and into these filthy, overcrowded, slum-like cities that were ripe with disease and uh, no sanitation and uh, you know, 20 people to a room, this sort of thing. Planning actually grew out of that because there was a realisation that continuing to have cities that function like this and, and people that live under these conditions within them is ultimately counterproductive because yes. your, your workforce is sick and it's dying. and you know, So actually putting together cities that had some degree of order to them and had sanitation and had separation through zoning, like Jason mentioned, that was a, a sort of a founding principle of all urban planning. So our profession arguably goes back to health concerns before anything else. Wow. Haven't thought of it in those terms before. It's or, trippy. Or <laughs> trippy, back to that word. 91.7 ABC Gold Coast. Matt Webber's my name. I've got uh, Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews with me as well, urban planners, Griffith University, the Urban Squeeze, talking about the walkability and the benefits uh, of, of this. I want to go back to some of the numbers you mentioned, Jason, in a moment. But yep. Before we get uh, get bogged down in the stats, the Gold Coast specifically, it's a long, thin strip. Right. Uh, we've got a rather large uh, arterial in the M1. We've got the Gold Coast Highway as well. kind of connects north and south, so to speak. I don't think of it as a walkable place beyond the fact it's flat. Um, where do we rate on the, uh, the, the walkability index? So right, so there's a, there's a kind of score that's called the walk score that's been invented to talk about how walkable places are. 
Um, places like DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., or some parts of San Francisco are up in the high 90s, Portland and Oregon. Uh, we've been rated, unfortunately, down around about 48 on yeah. that score, so not very walkable. Um, but when you think about the old settlements in the coast before it joined up into this large conurbation that we've been talking about, yes. places like Palm Beach, Churn Park, Mermaid Beach, you know, the Burley, Burley's a really good example, these sort of isolated smaller settlements, they're very walkable still. They have a grid pattern. They've kept managed to keep the kind of street-level retail and restaurants. That's what makes them so desirable and attractive. And well, in fact, walkable. at Palm Beach, you mentioned a re-emergence of that at the moment. We're there watching is. that. Uh, uh, it's almost a, a new shop opening up every week down there um, because people are enjoying that village kind of environment as they have in Burley for a while as well. Right, and when you think about places like Miami, for example, with that Miami One development, that's kind of what, where planning's heading. So that has ground floor retail. There's a small coal supermarket in there. There's some bike shops on the street, that mm. kind of stuff. There's little delis and there's bakeries, butchers. But above that is living. That sort of five-storey to seven-storey apartment space. If we can get that where people are living above the places where they can walk easily to shop and also then build in a recreation element. Tony and I have been talking about how the importance of some of these green areas, mm. trees and recreation, you start to solve some of these problems, right, Tony? Yeah, so green areas are, uh, are incredibly important uh, for both social and health outcomes in any urban setting. The more greenery you have, generally, the better the social cohesion and the better the health outcomes. But one of the things that myself and Jason are particularly focused on right now in our own research uh, is the benefits offered by street trees. And that's particularly pronounced in this part of the world because you have such a hot climate here with such severe sun that if you don't have trees that are growing with a wide canopy and covering streets and providing lots of shading, your streets basically turn into, you know, they, you get this kind of canyon oven effect. Yes and, yes, and nobody wants to be out walking in that. So the more street tree coverage you can have, the more lower street temperatures, the more walkable places become immediately because you're walking in shade, it's 10 or maybe more degrees lower under the trees. And the other thing, of course, is in summer where we're prone to spontaneous storms, the more tree cover you have, um, notwithstanding branch drop, you also have more... Um, physical cover if you were out walking you can get under a tree and, and get some relief from the weather so <laughs> the notwithstanding the warnings we offer to people yeah. every storm season don't right. stand under trees but, yeah. uh, you know that's but people perhaps will let's, let's talk it in the, the, the context of a heavy shower a heavy perhaps. shower, a heavy shower yes. we're not encouraging <laughs> anyone to get hit by lightning but you know the more tree coverage you can have the better and the more green space you can have the better the, the more green space people are offered and have access to them the more they will tend to use it so matt if you think about a street Imagine one of these streets with beautiful street trees that arch over and kind of close in and a nice canopy above the street. There's a few streets like that on the Gold Coast, not as many as places like Melbourne. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, give us some examples on the Gold Coast where this is done well. So if you imagine around uh, some parts of Southport, for example, the older parts of Southport where the street trees have grown over the street, or even Tony and I were talking about Macquarie Street as you get further down to towards Rabina and Rabina Parkway, there's a section of that street where the trees, the paperbacks, almost cover the whole street. So it's these green boulevards we're talking about they can actually improve walkability dramatically. So the destinations we were talking about before, those little bakeries, butchers, that sort of stuff, they increase walking by about six minutes per week per destination. The more destinations, the more walking. With green streets and boulevards and parks, we're talking about 21 minutes extra walking per week. You see, and you can see the proof is in the pudding as well here. If you look, um, at, if you, if you look at the walking paths that follow the, the coastline, and you have the big pine trees and lots of shading and coverage and green area. They, I mean, they're under constant use. And people walking up and down them, exercising, running, cycling, walking the dog, and then sitting alongside them. And you contrast that uh, and the temperatures that are available there and the air temperatures with 
what you get if you're sitting, say, directly on the beach or if you were standing on the other side on the road. It's significantly more uh, appealing. And you can see that in, in, in the, the amount of people that, is, that are using that space. So, I mean, so all along the Gold Coast, that, that happens. Uh, talking walkability on the Urban Squeeze this afternoon, Jason Byrne and Dr Tony Matthews with me as well from Griffith University. The numbers, I wanted to return to the numbers. When you describe the cost-benefit analysis in terms of the stark reality of health cost. For instance, you spoke about 60% of Australians being overweight, a figure that is on the increase. It'll be more like 66% in a little while. Um, you were throwing around some pretty hefty uh, figures attached to uh, paying for people who are overweight, I mean, multiples of billions of dollars. Um, when these things can be so accurately defined in such stark numbers, why do governments not act quicker to do what the simple solution seems to be and encourage space for people to be more active and thereby improve their lifestyle? Do you want the cynical answer or the... Uh... I want both. <laughs> well, let's go with your cynical answer cynical first answer and I'll is, give another answer. Cynical answer is it, 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 trying to affect some sort of meaningful change within the election cycle is difficult for this. This is, this is a, yes. a, a long-term problem. This is, you know, you're talking decades to remediate this problem. It doesn't, so it doesn't fit in the three-year election cycle. But the, but the ridiculous thing is, from a budgetary point of view, it would be to everyone's benefit, Passive ultimately. Sightings. It would be, but... No matter which side of politics you're on. Yeah, but the problem is your, 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 your rivals could be in government in six or nine or 12 years when the benefits really start to flow through and we have the figures to prove it and and that's why uh, that, that is one reason why governments are reluctant so how do you agitate for change so we're cycle? seeing some change happening right so the last time we had a national level cities approach was when Gough Whitlam was in power that was the Department of Urban and Regional Development that's a long time ago now the um, the current Turnbull administration has finally got a minister who's more or less in charge of cities. 40 years ago. It is. So we're finally kind of getting a national level policy there. But what, when I talk to my students, I talk about a super tanker as an analogy, as a metaphor. So even if you throw the wheel hard over on a super tanker, it's going to take a kilometre or more to start turning, right? And our planning systems are a bit like that as well. So we've got, we've got policies in place now. We've got measures. The new developers like Delph and Lend Lease, for example, Lend Lease, um, these kinds of organisations are thinking about walkability and how to put it back. But the bigger challenge is retrofitting. How do we tackle those suburbs that already exist? Yeah, stuff yeah, that was stolen my next question. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you adapt what is already there, the mistakes that have already been made perhaps, uh, to better cater for the health of people? Right, and some of the answers are going to maybe alarm a couple of listeners, but there are things like actually having to take some houses out and maybe improve connectivity with some of the roads, so demolishing houses, putting in better connectivity, starting to improve density around these public transport routes, that sort of stuff. It's Literally renovating. Renovating, your, renovating entire suburbs. Yeah. But, it, it goes and it, but it goes against the, the sort of the current thinking around development is very focused on more development and particularly more density and a lot of infill development. So you knock one house and you build six apartments in its place. And what Jason is suggesting as a potential solution, the idea that we would actually do a little bit less building or leave some blocks vacant or convert them back to green space, that runs counter to the logic of development at the moment uh, and again that's problematic and most development of course is not I mean Jason's right yeah there's some development corporations out there like Lendlease who are doing really good work and who are master planning entire communities so that there's inbuilt walkability that's fine for new stuff but retrofitting is yeah, remains a problem and and one of the difficulties is also land ownership 
government doesn't necessarily own this land. It, mm. Most of it's in, in private hands. So you have to have buyback schemes, and then there's pressure on public finances, and there's budget bottom lines, and so these all become problems. And as Jason said, it's kind of it's, Jason's absolutely right. You throw the wheel on a super tanker, and it starts to take a long time before things change. But where there's a will, there's a way. But whether there's a will is the question. Why well, just say the ledger? I look at the ledger and th look at these massive costs attached to to people being unhealthy. Uh, when the the benefits are measurable, equally measurable, you'd think it would be a relatively easy ship to turn. But right, we've got governments obsessed about getting back into the black, mm. right? So here's an easy way to do it. Well, this is what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. And, 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 I mean, if, like we were just talking before we we came down. Um, if you look at the level of public expenditure, uh, attention and health campaigns that have been ongoing for several decades now around smoking, now we're really seeing the benefit of it, but it took decades. And this stuff is, is, is costing significantly more than smoking now. Uh, obesity and, and, and immobility, the costs of the exchequer are much, much higher in, 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 than what we used to deal with. And it was never, you know, it's never the case that government cares if you or me as individuals smoke. What they care about is the cost of uh, us getting sick or getting lung cancer or something and ending up in hospital. That's what motivates them. Is it's the ledger thing. So, yeah. so this is a long-term thing. So we would need to take a long-term approach with the way that we do with something or the way we did with something like smoking or maybe uh, a sustained approach to uh, dealing with road traffic accidents the way we do around sort of educating drivers around speed and drink driving and things like that. But we, we need to really dig in on this one. Yeah. So you might, you might, listeners, I challenge the listeners to start looking at around the landscape, looking in the parks, looking when they walk and see who's on the that sort of stuff but also looking for the signs they're there they're on the backs of buses and they're on billboards get more active that kind of stuff but you know we spend 300 million dollars a year in australia on weight loss programs and dietary supplements yet we're paying almost 100 billion dollars in these indirect and direct costs related to obesity if we start getting people back into parks making it easy for them to walk on their streets neighbourhoods become friendlier, depression drops out, people get fitter, right? We're on the track to success. You're on a winner. Guys, we're out of time. Fascinating. Uh, as always, the Urban Squeeze for another week. Associate Professor Jason Byrne, Dr Tony Matthews from the School of Environment at Griffith University. Food for thought. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank very you very welcome. much, Matt.